welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you as always for listening. Before we begin, I'd like to thank you all for the reception you gave the first episode of the series. I'm pleased to let you know that this is going to be another long one, about eight episodes in total, and I'm looking forward to the rest of them. Also, before we begin, I'd like to apologize if the sound quality on this episode is a bit poor. I'm recording this used a, a headset instead of my usual mic. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. In the last episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we basically covered the course of Ukrainian nationalism from its early developments in the final years of the 18th century up until the eve of the First World War. Essentially, Ukrainian nationalism followed the course of development for nearly all Eastern European nationalist movements. First, the Ukrainian nation went through its intellectual or academic phase, passed into a broader cultural phase in the middle of the century, and by the 1890s, it had achieved politicization with the formation of a number of political parties openly advocating for Ukrainian interests. All throughout this time, the Ukrainian nationalists had been hounded by Russian authorities, as the official ideology of the Russian state held that the existence of an independent Ukrainian identity was a threat to the state. The level of repression experienced by the Ukrainian national movement ebbed and flowed over the years, with periods of particularly intense persecution followed by those of relative liberalization. One such period of liberalization followed the Russian Revolution of 1905, during which time widespread unrest forced Tsar Nicholas II to sign off on the October Manifesto, a document which granted limited civil and political rights to the subjects of the Russian Empire. With the reassertion of the Tsar's prerogatives following the year 1907, however, it seemed, as posited in the last episode, that the forces of reaction had won the struggle in Russia, at least for now. The specific reasons for Russia's entry into the conflict that would become the First World War are rather convoluted. Suffice it to say, however, that, as of August 1914, the Russian state had fully committed itself to war against the central powers of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and later Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. In a phenomenon comparable to those seen in the other major belligerent countries of the war, the days immediately following the declaration of hostilities saw an unprecedented upsurge in Russian nationalist sentiment. On August 2nd, 1914, a massive crowd, nearly as big as the procession of Bloody Sunday nine years prior, flooded into the courtyard outside the Tsar's residence at the Winter Palace, with all present unanimously professing their patriotism to the motherland and their loyalty to the Tsar. In these heady early days of the war, it seemed as though the outbreak of war would be a great boon to the Russian state, reaffirming the loyalty of its subjects and providing it with priceless opportunities for imperial expansion. Ukraine, by virtue of its location as a borderland between Russia and Austria-Hungary, became a battleground nearly as soon as hostilities broke out. As I explained in the first episode of this series, the territory that we today recognize as being Ukraine was split between a larger eastern part under the jurisdiction of the Russian Empire and a smaller western part under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The capture of the Ukrainian majority area of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, corresponding to the eastern half of the crown land of Galicia Lodomeria, became top priority for the Russian high command, for reasons both ideological and pragmatic. Pragmatically, the capture of Galicia afforded the Russian state a perfect opportunity to stamp out what had become a hotbed of Ukrainian nationalism. While Russia vigorously repressed Ukrainian linguistic and cultural activity within its own borders, the Austro-Hungarians, on the other hand, preferred to allow the minority nationalities of their empire a wider degree of autonomy on such matters. Thus, over the decades, Galicia had turned into a sort of Ukrainian Piedmont, Ukrainian intellectual activity flourished at the University of Lemberg, the Galician capital, 
and Ukrainian-language publications frequently found their way across the border into Russian Ukraine. If Russian armies could invade and occupy the region, the same repressive measures could be implemented there, and the Ukrainian national movement would be dealt a very serious blow. Of course, Russian officials were not so forthright about their motives. Outwardly, the Russians stressed the fact that the eastern half of Galicia constituted the only area inhabited primarily by eastern Slavic people that was not controlled by Russia, the self-professed defender of Slavdom and Eastern Orthodoxy. The propagandistic potential of a Russian seizure of Galicia was great, as the Russian state could claim to have finally accomplished its long-term goal of quote-unquote reuniting the ancient lands of the Kievan Rus, a medieval confederation of Eastern Slavic monarchies, through the legacy of which the modern Russian Empire claimed to derive its legitimacy. In August 1914, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, cousin to the Tsar and commander-in-chief of the Russian army, issued the following manifesto, quote, Brothers, the judgment of God is upon us. Patiently, with Christian humility, the Russian people have languished beneath the foreign yoke, but neither cajolery nor persecution could break its hope for freedom. An impetuous stream breaks the rock in order to merge with the sea. So, there is no force that could stop the Russian people in its strive for unification. Let there be no more subjugated Rus. Let the domain of St. Vladimir, the land of Yaroslav Osomusil, and Princesses Daniel and Roman, throw off the yoke, raise the flag of Russia, one, great and indivisible, and you, long-suffering fraternal Rus, rise to greet Russian arms, liberated Russian brethren, you will all find a place in the bosom of great Mother Russia." End quote. It was with those aforementioned strategic objectives in mind that Russia took the initiative and launched offensives into enemy borderlands, specifically German East Prussia and Austro-Hungarian Galicia. The former offensive met with absolute disaster. The German army proved to be far more formidable than perhaps the Russian high command had anticipated, and the Russian army was dealt a series of disastrous defeats at the battles of Tannenberg and of the Missourian Lakes. The Russian military fared far better on the southwestern front, however being able to occupy most of eastern Galicia by the end of the year 1914. The Russian advance was halted, at least temporarily, at the fortress city of Primacy, but the Russians, assuming that their occupation of Galicia was to be a permanent state of affairs, wasted no time in enacting their political agenda in the occupied territory. Shortly after the Russian victory at the Battle of Lemberg, the general government of Galicia and Bukovina was established by the Russian army and this new administrative unit was placed under the governor-generalship of Count Georgi Bobrinsky. Count Bobrinsky made no illusions about his intentions toward the region, declaring soon after assuming office, quote, I shall establish the Russian language, law, and system here, end quote. Count Bobrinsky immediately moved to establish a comprehensive political program of Russification. The names of cities, streets, buildings, and other locations were changed to their Russian forms, Lemberg became Lvov, and so on. A crackdown on Ukrainian-language publications ensued. All use of the Ukrainian, or Little Russian, language, as it was officially called, including even impersonal correspondence, was prohibited. Ukrainian activists were arrested and sentenced to internal exile. One such prisoner was Mikhail Khrushchevsky, the 50-year-old historian who had been appointed as professor of Ukrainian history at the University of Lemberg. The Russian authorities accused Khrushchevsky of being part of an Austrian plot to dismember the Russian Empire, and summarily had him deported to the Russian town of Simbirsk, some 2,000 miles to the east. The fortress city of Premisil finally fell to Russian forces on March 22, 1915. With Easter Sunday less than a month away, Tsar Nicholas II decided to pay a personal visit to the newly conquered city of Lvov to celebrate the most holy of Christian holidays. 
This visit was little more than a photo op. When the Tsar arrived in Lvov, the newly appointed Russian Orthodox Archbishop of the region lavished much praise on him. Quote, Your Imperial Highness, you are first to enter this ancient Russian land, the patrimony of the old Russian princes Roman and Daniil, where no Russian monarch has ever been. This subjugated, long-suffering Rus, from whom sighs and groans were heard for ages, now raises a triumphant hosanna to you, end quote. A Russian film crew was on site to film the Tsar's entrance to Lvov and his celebration of the Easter holiday there. Images of Nicholas II exchanging gifts with the rank-and-file soldiers soon became the subject of many highly idealized paintings and postcards. Ultimately, the Russian occupation of Galicia was not even fated to last a year. But much damage had been done in this relatively short time frame. Khrushchevsky himself would later say that, quote, Ukrainian Galicia was completely desolated by the Russian occupation of 1914 to 1915, end quote. The center of Ukrainian cultural and political activity that was Lemberg was completely uprooted. Less than a month after the Tsar's photo op in that town, the armies of the Central Powers went back on the attack once more. This time, the Austro-Hungarians' German counterparts brought their more formidable army to bear on the southwestern front. The Russians were caught on the back foot. In what would become known as the Gorlitz-Tarnov Offensive, the Russians were forced to abandon the conquered territory of Galicia and much of Congress Poland, initiating the so-called Great Retreat. In the pandemonium that was the Great Retreat, Russian armies wreaked havoc on the territories they were abandoning to the Central Powers, engaging in scorched-earth tactics. Those unfortunate enough to live in the path of the retreating Russian army could expect to see their houses raided, their fields put to the torch, and their property stolen or destroyed. Crucially for our purposes here, the retreating Russian army took along with them those elements of the local population that they believed to be loyal to the Russian state. To avoid deportation to the infamous Tellerhof internment camp, prominent Galician Russophiles gladly followed the Russian army eastward. Those who were left behind by the army tended to be more Ukrainophilic in political orientation. The year 1915 was, overall, an unmitigated disaster for the Russians on the Eastern Front. Over a million men and thousands of square miles of territory were lost. In August 1915, Tsar Nicholas II, indignant at this failure, dismissed the army's commander-in-chief, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, and assumed personal command over the army. This decision would prove to be particularly short-sighted, as it was the monarchy's gross mishandling of the war effort that would eventually result in its total collapse. I will alight over the details of 1916, seeing as how this isn't a podcast about the First World War, but suffice it to say that the situation continued to deteriorate steadily for the Russian war effort over the course of that year. By February 1917, food shortages in many of the empire's major cities, including Petrograd, the imperial capital formerly known as St. Petersburg, led to widespread unrest among the urban working class. On International Women's Day, February 23, 1917, a group of protesters, among whom women were prominent, staged a massive demonstration in Petrograd in protest of the government's policies of food rationing. As the crowd grew ever larger, demands for bread metamorphosized into demands for an end to Tsarist autocracy. After only three days, the crowds in the streets of Petrograd had ballooned to over 200,000. The Tsar, who was at this time not in the capital, but rather directing the war effort from the town of Mogilev in modern Belarus, ordered the army to suppress the protests. But crucially, the army, the ranks of which had become radicalized over the course of the last three years, refused to carry out these orders. Tsar Nicholas II refused to accept the reality of the situation until the very end, when, on March 2, 1917, he was compelled to abdicate the throne of Russia. Political power passed into the hands of a provisional government made up of members of the Duma, 
the Empire's official representative body, which had been sidelined by the monarchy for the past decade. The new government was intended, at least at first, to be strictly provisional. The major questions of Russia's political future were to be determined at the All-Russian Constituent Assembly. The Constituent Assembly was to be a new representative body, elected on the basis of universal suffrage, which would be entrusted with the authority to devise a new constitution for the Russian state, be it Republican, Socialist, Monarchist, or otherwise. All members of the Russian political scene understood and accepted it, however begrudgingly, to be the only legitimate way for a new government to take power. The collapse of the monarchy during the February Revolution threw the entire Russian Empire into a crisis of authority. Various political actors raced to fill the void. The provisional government of Prince Lvov was just one such entity. The chief rivals of the provisional government were the Soviets. The Soviets were councils of the elected representatives of workers, peasants, and soldiers, and they claimed popular legitimacy. The Soviets began to emerge in cities all across the former Russian Empire with the most important being headquartered in the capital city of Petrograd. The Petrograd Soviet worked out a tense power-sharing agreement with the provisional government, inaugurating a period of Russian revolutionary history known as dual power. Outside the capital, the various national minorities of the former empire also saw the collapse of authority as an opportunity to assert their own prerogatives. On March 4, 1917, only two days following the Tsar's abdication, a formerly underground political party known as the Society of Ukrainian Progressives formed the Ukrainian Central Rada, the first independent Ukrainian government in the modern era. Note that Rada is a Ukrainian term meaning council. Although the equivalent term in Russian is the word Soviet, the Central Rada and the Soviets were entirely separate political entities with differing interests. The Central Rada was a general assembly intended to facilitate the cooperation of all parties across the entire political spectrum in Ukraine. Although given the nature of the Ukrainian national movement, the body tilted heavily towards the left wing. Less than a week after the founding of the Central Rada, Professor Mikhail Khrushchevsky returned from his internal exile and was unanimously voted president of this new Ukrainian government. The Central Rada held its first session on March 19, 1917. This meeting coincided with a massive rally on the streets of Kiev in support of the Central Rada. The streets of the ancient Ukrainian capital were lined with some 100,000 demonstrators, many of whom were proudly waving the blue and yellow flag of Ukraine. This display, to Khrushchevsky, proved that the Ukrainian national movement had broad popular support. He would go on to write, quote, The new government set March 19th as the date for the national manifestation of patriotism in Kiev. The immense demonstration and subsequent meetings conclusively proved that Ukrainianism was not a movement restricted to a few teachers, but was the will of an entire nation, end quote. As one eyewitness observer put it, quote, many people suddenly felt themselves to be Ukrainian, end quote. The future of Ukraine under the Central Rada, which at this time was essentially functioning as, quote, the de facto parliament of a nation within a state, end quote, was very much indeterminate. Initially, the Central Rada was concerned with cultural objectives, such as the establishment of the Ukrainian language in schools, and an end to censorship of Ukrainian language publications. Under Khrushchevsky's leadership, the main aim of the Central Rada became achieving Ukrainian autonomy. Even after the onset of this revolutionary epoch, the vast majority of Ukrainian nationalists did not yet aspire to outright independence. Rather, they remained steadfast in their advocacy of Ukrainian autonomy within a liberalized and federalized reconfiguration of the Russian Empire. Ukrainian independence was seen as an extreme position, something that was almost unthinkable. As Ukrainian revolutionary leader Volodymyr Venichenko wrote at the time, quote, 
Ukrainian separatism died with its raison d'etre, czarism. Ukrainianism oriented itself solely on the all-Russian revolution, on the triumph of justice. We became a part, organic, active, live, willing part of a united whole. All separatism, all self-exclusion from revolutionary Russia appeared to be laughable, absurd, and foolish. End quote. Khrushchevsky was not above invoking the specter of Ukrainian independence in order to further his agenda. In late March 1917, he wrote an article indirectly addressed to the provisional government entitled No Turning Back. Quote, Broad autonomy for Ukraine, with sovereign rights for the Ukrainian people. That is the program of the given moment from which there can be no turning back. Any obstacles, any vacillation in satisfying it on the part of the leaders of the Russian state or the ruling circles of Russian society will tip the scales in the direction of Ukrainian independence. At the present moment, those who support an independent, or more precisely, a self-sufficient Ukraine, agree to remain on a common platform of broad national territorial autonomy and federal guarantees of Ukraine's sovereign right. The flag of independent Ukraine remains folded, but will it be unfurled the moment all Russian centralists might wish to tear the banner of broad Ukrainian autonomy within a federal democratic Russian republic? End quote. The revolutionary Russian Republic, which was now seen by many as being the freest country in the world, came to be seen as the only force capable of achieving the radical social and economic reforms the revolutionary masses desired. Relations with the provisional government based in Petrograd would, therefore, be critical to maintain in the following days. The Central Rada, almost immediately upon its founding, declared its support for the provisional government in Petrograd. Their support, however, was not unconditioned. The very first sessions of the Central Rada saw that organization begin to formulate its demands of the provisional government on behalf of the Ukrainian people it claimed to represent. Top priority was, of course, to secure Ukrainian autonomy. Also on the list were demands for the protection of national minorities within Ukraine, the introduction of the Ukrainian language in educational, religious, and political institutions, the establishment of homogeneously Ukrainian units within the Russian army and the release of Ukrainian political prisoners arrested during the occupation of Galicia and during the Great Retreat. These pleas would ultimately fall upon deaf ears. At this time, the provisional government was led by the liberal, centrist, constitutional democratic party, better known as the Cadets. The party was split on the issue of the former empire's nationalities. Prominent party theorist Pyotr Struva was an adherent of the tripartite model of Russian national identity, which held that Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians constituted subgroups of the same nation. As such, he ardently opposed what he perceived to be an attempt to split the Russian nation in three. Cadet party leader Pavel Milyukov was more moderate on the issue. He was in support of enhanced civil and political rights for the empire's minorities, but stopped just short of tolerating autonomous government. As he later wrote, Milyukov and his allies were, were reluctant to recognize Ukrainian autonomy, as such an action would inevitably lead the other national minorities to express similar demands. Milyukov also saw a premature recognition of Ukrainian autonomy as an act which, quote, anticipated the decisions of the Constituent Assembly, for it established one of the fundamental features of the future structure of Russia, end quote. So long as the cadets remained at the helm of the Russian state, the government's official policy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, and vis-a-vis -vis the nationalities in general, was to defer any and all such decisions to the all-Russian Constituent Assembly. Although the month of March saw the provisional government forced to make promises of greater autonomy to Poland and Finland, two entities that had already enjoyed a significant degree of autonomy under the old regime, no response of any kind was made to the demands of the Ukrainians. By June 1917, the Central Rada had grown rather upset with Petrograd's response, or lack thereof, 
to their demands for autonomy. Emboldened in the knowledge that, as of May 6th, they now claim to represent the will of the whole Ukrainian people, the Central Rada issued its first universal, or proclamation, on June 10th. The first universal, which was conscientiously styled in the manner of declarations issued by the Zaporizhian Cossack host in the 17th century, was authored by socialist journalist turned revolutionary Volodymyr Venichenko. The document itself functioned as both an unequivocal and unilateral declaration of Ukrainian autonomy, and as a manifesto to the provisional government. The first universal of the Ukrainian Central Rada opened with the following statement, quote, Let Ukraine be free. Without separating themselves entirely from the Russian state, let the Ukrainian people in their own land have the right to order their own lives. Let law and order in Ukraine be given by the all-national Ukrainian parliament elected by universal, equal, direct, and secret suffrage. From this day forth, we shall direct our own lives. End quote. The remainder of the document listed the specific demands of the Central Rada, the broad contours of which were laid out in its first few sessions as described earlier. The reaction in Petrograd to the first universal was immediate and nearly unanimous condemnation. Many admonished the Ukrainians for being overly hasty in their move to seek autonomy. There was still a war going on, after all, and Ukrainian autonomy, it was thought, had the potential to harm the war effort. Some even went so far as to resurrect the Tsarist-era accusation that Ukrainian nationalism was simply the product of a Germanic plot to dismember the Russian Empire. The provisional government itself hoped to simply ignore the Ukrainian problem, and waited two weeks before issuing a response. That response came directly from Prince Georgi Wabov, Prime Minister of the Provisional Government. It was addressed not to the Central Rada, but to the Ukrainian people as a whole. Quote, Brother Ukrainians, do not embark on the heedless path of destroying the strength of liberated Russia. Do not separate yourselves from the common fatherland, in the interests of all liberated Russia, in the interests of defending the gains of the revolution from enemies inside and out. Entrust your national interests to the people who, through the representatives in the Constituent Assembly, will know how to hammer out those forms of a state and economic system which will correspond fully to your national aspirations. End quote. The Prime Minister ended his emotional appeal by begging, quote, that the Ukrainians, in their impatient desire to secure at once a form of government for the Ukraine, not deal a fatal blow to the Russian state as a whole. End quote. This general sentiment of disapproval was echoed across nearly all of Russian political circles. The only non-Ukraine-based political party to voice unequivocal support for the Ukrainians' ambitions to achieve national self-determination was the Bolshevik Party and its leader, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known by his revolutionary alias, Lenin, a figure who I feel needs little by the way of introduction. The Bolsheviks were, as adherents to Marxist orthodoxy, strict materialists. In their conception, all questions of race, ethnicity, and nationality were subordinated to the larger question of class. The Bolshevik Party platform explicitly renounced nationalism. Rather, the Bolsheviks were internationalists, dedicated first and foremost to the proliferation of the socialist revolution across the world. This idealistic belief in world revolution had to be balanced with some pragmatism, however. The Bolsheviks had to adapt their platform to accommodate certain political realities. The emergence of nationalist movements throughout the Russian Empire in the later half of the 19th century forced the Bolsheviks to formulate and articulate their stance on those trapped within what they called the prison of nations. Lenin himself had written extensively on the so-called national question, with his earliest writings on the subject even predating the Bolshevik-Menshevik split. In 1903, in response to a manifesto issued by the Armenian Social Democrats, Lenin wrote, quote, The demand for recognition of every nationality's right to self-determination simply implies that we, 
as the party of the proletariat, must always and unconditionally oppose any attempt to influence national self-determination from without by violence or injustice. End quote. Lenin's stance on the national question, first articulated here in 1903, essentially became the platform of the Bolshevik party vis-a-vis nationalities. In his own reply to the Central Rada's first universal, Lenin wrote, quote, These are perfectly clear words. They state very specifically that the Ukrainian people do not wish to secede from Russia at the present. They demand autonomy without denying the need for the supreme authority of the all-Russia parliament. No Democrat, let alone a socialist, will venture to deny the complete legitimacy of the Ukraine's demands. And no Democrat can deny the Ukraine's right to freely secede from Russia. Only unqualified recognition of this right makes it possible to advocate a free union of the Ukrainians and the great Russians, a voluntary association of two peoples within one state. Only unqualified recognition of this right can actually break completely and irrevocably with the accursed Tsarist past, when everything was done to bring about a mutual estrangement of the two peoples so close to each other in language, territory, character, and in history. End quote. Lenin and the Bolsheviks were relentless in their criticism of the provisional government for the way in which they treated the nationalities of the former empire. This was a conscientious political decision intended to both undermine the credibility of their opponents in the provisional government, but also to secure the support of the national minorities. Leading Bolshevik party theoretician Leon Trotsky would go on to write that, quote, Ukraine was a gigantic thorn in the flesh of the provisional government, end quote. Perhaps realizing that their policy of silence was untenable, on July 12th, the provisional government dispatched a three-man commission to Kiev to investigate the conditions on the ground there, and if necessary, to cut a deal with the Central Rada. The commission was led by future Prime Minister Alexander Kerensky. Kerensky was a fiery young lawyer and the leader of the moderate Trudevich faction of, within the Socialist Revolutionary Party of Russia. His unbridled ambition and willingness to work with those further to the right than him, i.e. the cadets, enabled him to rise through the ranks of the provisional government becoming Minister of War on May 3, 1917. After about four days of negotiations, the Central Rada and the Russian delegation reached an agreement, which was outlined in the Central Rada's second universal. Once again written by Venichenko, although this time with considerable input from Kerensky and the other Russian commissioners, the second universal proclaimed that the authority of the Central Rada had been recognized by the government in Petrograd. Although under pressure from the Russians, Venichenko included a clause in the document clarifying that a final decision on Ukraine's status was to be made at the All-Russian Constituent Assembly. Once again, nowhere in this document was any indication of the Ukrainians' intentions to separate from Russia entirely. In fact, the Second Universal explicitly denied this claim. Nevertheless, the Second Universal was still cause for yet another round of controversy in Petrograd. It enraged the more nationalist-inclined Russians, who perceived it as being a betrayal of the Russian nation. In protest of the government's dealings with the Central Rada, the cadets resigned en masse from the provisional government, including Minister of Foreign Affairs Pavel Milyukov. A new coalition government was formed, which was willing to accept the terms of the Second Universal, but this would not spell the end of tensions between Kiev and Petrograd. A massive military operation known to history as the Kerensky Offensive was launched on the first of the following month. Bearing the name of its chief architect, the new Minister of War, Alexander Kerensky, the offensive was intended to boost Russian morale and rally popular support for the provisional government. Instead, it backfired spectacularly. The Russian army was defeated soundly, and the offensive was called off by the end of the month. This had the effect of absolutely shattering what was left of the army's morale, and beginning a period of intense anti-government violence in Petrograd, known as the July Days. 
while the riots in Petrograd were eventually suppressed and the Bolshevik leadership was sent into hiding once again. The provisional government was thrown into crisis as Prince Lvov resigned and Kerensky succeeded him as prime minister. The mounting instability in the capital seemed to indicate to all, including the Ukrainians, that the provisional government was not long for this world. This was all but confirmed during the Kornilov affair, an incident in which reactionary general Lavrov Kornilov very nearly overthrew the provisional government. In the absence of any decisive action taken on behalf of the Ukrainians, support for the provisional government began to wane in Kiev. On the night of October 24, 1917, the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government by means of a nearly bloodless coup d'etat in Petrograd. The following day saw Russia descend into a state of anarchy, as similar uprisings against forces loyal to Kerensky and the provisional government occurred in many of Russia's major cities. When news of the developments in the capital reached Kiev, violence broke out almost immediately. Fearing a reactionary backlash, an organization known as the Regional Committee for the Protection of the Revolution of Ukraine was formed at the Central Radis Initiative. This organization, which was formed with the sole purpose of struggling with the enemies of the revolution, preserving order in the territory, and defending all achievements of the revolution, was made up of representatives of nearly all the Ukrainian political parties, including the Bolsheviks. Thus, the Central Rada and the Ukrainian Bolsheviks cooperated with one another over the next three days in ousting the Loyalists from Kiev. With order restored and forces loyal to the Central Rada and firm control of the capital, the Bolshevik majority in the Kiev Soviet led to the emergence of a tense sort of dual-power dynamic between the Central Rada and the Kiev Soviet. In response to the demands of the Bolsheviks to transfer all political power to the Soviets, a faction of Russian social revolutionaries and Mensheviks and the Central Rada's executive committee passed a revolution officially condemning the Bolshevik seizure of power. Quote, Recognizing that authority in the whole state, as in each individual territory, should be placed in the hands of the whole revolutionary democracy, and regarding as impermissible the transfer of all authority exclusively into the hands of the Soviet of workers and soldiers' deputies, which is but a segment of revolutionary democracy, the Ukrainian Central Rada hereby expresses its disapproval of the Petrograd uprising. End quote. Despite this pronouncement, the official position of the Central Rada towards the new regime in Petrograd was one of neutrality, at least initially. The Central Rada was certainly not fond of the provisional government, and many understood this turn of events to signify a deepening of the revolution. The officials of the Central Rada believed, or rather hoped, that they would be able to secure Ukrainian autonomy by working with the new government. Official Soviet-Ukrainian relations got off to a promising start when the Council of People's Commissars, the new executive body of the Russian Republic issued its Declaration of the Rights of the People of Russia on November 2nd, just one week after the revolution. Of the Declaration's four articles, the first two are most important. They are as follows, quote, 1. The equality and sovereignty of the peoples of Russia, and 2. The right of all peoples of Russia to free self-determination, even to the point of separation and the formation of an independent state, end quote. While this document was still fresh off the presses, the Central Rada issued its third universal on November 7th. This document proclaimed that, quote, from this day forth, the Ukraine becomes the Ukrainian People's Republic, end quote. The proclamation of the Ukrainian People's Republic, or the UNR in its abbreviated form, still envisioned said entity as an autonomous unit within the Russian Republic, quote, without separating ourselves from the Russian Republic and maintaining its unity, we shall stand firmly on our own soil in order that our strength may aid all of Russia, so that the whole Russian Republic may become a federation of free and equal peoples. The UNR would, according to this document, consist of the former governments of Kiev, Podilia, Volyn, Chernihiv, 
Poltava, Kharkiv, Ekaterinoslav, Kherson, and Taurida, excluding the Crimean Peninsula. The status of the former governance con containing a significant Ukrainian population, Kolm, Voroznech, and Kursk, was to be decided at the All-Russian Constituent Assembly. Once again, the leaders of the Central Rado pinned their hopes on the Constituent Assembly to determine what the future relation of Ukraine to Russia would be. The Central Rada claimed all power to establish order in the country, to promulgate laws, and to govern, until said Constituent Assembly was convened the coming January. This, for the Bolsheviks, would simply not do. The Bolsheviks wished to delegate all political power to the Soviets, which they saw as representing a more legitimate form of revolutionary democracy than that represented by the Central Rada, or by the Constituent Assembly for that matter. Meanwhile, resistance to the new Bolshevik regime began almost immediately. Quite literally, on the day after the Bolshevik seizure of power, the recently ousted Prime Minister Alexander Kerensky, with the assistance of former Tsarist General Pyotr Krasnov and 700 of his men, attempted to retake the capital by force. Forces loyal to the provisional government managed to capture the former residents of the imperial family at Tsarsky Selo, but were soundly defeated at the Battle of the Polkovo Heights. Disgraced, Kerensky fled the country, going into exile first in France and later into the United States. Meanwhile, some 1,800 kilometers to the south, in a town on the eastern border of Ukraine called Novotrykask, General Alexei Kaledin was the first to raise the standard of revolt against the Bolshevik regime. As soon as word reached Kaledin of the revolution in Petrograd, Kaledin, a former Tsarist cavalry officer and commander of the Don Cossack army, decided that until the authority of the provisional government was restored, the whole of the Don region of southern Russia would be under the direct control of him and his forces. The Don region quickly became a hotbed of anti-Bolshevik activity, serving as a refuge for cadet politicians and former Tsarist officers fleeing the capital. In November, Generals Mikhail Alexeyev and Lavor Kornilov began to call for volunteers to fight the Bolsheviks, thus forming the nucleus of the Volunteer Army, which would turn into the armed wing of the larger anti-Bolshevik White Movement. The organization of counter-revolutionary forces in southern Russia posed an existential threat to the Bolshevik regime. Civil war was on the horizon in the former Russian Empire, but the Ukrainians wanted absolutely no part. However, the fact that the Don region and the town of Novotrykask were so close to the territory claimed by the Ukrainian People's Republic spelled trouble. On December 3, 1917, Lenin issued his manifesto to the Ukrainian people with an ultimatum to the Ukrainian Rada. In this document, Lenin directly accused the Central Rada of, quote, conducting behind a screen of national praises a double-dealing bourgeois policy, which has long been expressed in the Rada's non-recognition of the Soviets and Soviet power in the Ukraine. Incidentally, the Rada has refused to convoke a territorial congress of the Ukrainian Soviets immediately, as the Soviets of the Ukraine have demanded. This ambiguous policy, which has made it impossible for us to recognize the Rada as a plenipotentiary representative of the working and exploited masses of the Ukrainian Republic, has lately led the Rada to steps which preclude all possibility of agreement. End quote. Lenin ultimately leveled three specific charges against the Central Rada. Firstly, that they were countermanding the authority of the Soviets and the Russian army. Secondly, that they were actively disarming Soviet troops in Ukrainian territory. And thirdly, that they were aiding and abetting what Lenin called the Cadet Kaledin Revolt against Soviet power in southern Russia. Lenin demanded that the Central Rada cease these activities at once and give their full cooperation to the Soviet government in combating the nascent white movement. If an affirmative response was not issued by the Central Rada within the next 48 hours, the Council of People's Commissars would consider the UNR to be in a state of war against the Soviet government, 
no response was issued. War was coming to Ukraine. And it is on that dramatic note that I will leave things for the time being. In the next episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we will finally begin our narrative in earnest. As Soviet troops invade Ukraine, a separate Ukrainian Soviet Republic is declared, and the Ukrainian People's Republic, faced with little other choice, is forced to declare itself independent. The future of Ukraine was in flux, and you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to hear the next part of the story. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the episode description. Additionally, if you like this show and would like to support it, I would encourage you to check out the show's Patreon page or the unofficial eBay store. At the very least, consider leaving the show a favorable review on iTunes so that more people can find it. Anyway, I'd like to thank you very much for listening. This has been the Historia Dramatica podcast, and I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.